Welcome to Innovating Music, a podcast of the UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music. I'm your host, Dr. Gigi Johnson. Today, please enjoy this wonderful episode with us with Portia Sabin, the head of the Music Business Association. She has been able to help Music Biz step up to a completely online delivery, but in part because she is a triple threat, both a, a doctorate in anthropology, extensive time in rock bands as performers, but also extensive time in trade associations looking at the world through different lenses of connectivity. She's really looking at how people crave togetherness and how the powers of trade associations are even more important in this distributed and high change era. So enjoy this podcast. Thank you for joining us. And with not much forewarning on our side, we appreciate your joining the podcast. No problem. I'm happy to be here. So you have a fascinating multi-tiered life and then have stepped in to be coming in as a leadership role of the Music Business Association during this incredibly crazy time. So can we maybe start with the backup, which is the, how did you end up getting from being an artist and a label to going into the other sides of looking at change in the business? Well, it's funny because, you know, I recently articulated this in a different way. I feel like I'm a person who was crazy about music, who became a person who's crazy about the music business. I think I sort of fell in love with the business as I got to know it more and more. When I started out, I started out as an artist. I actually picked up the bass guitar at 14 and was unable to find anyone to play with, you know, partially because that's just a tough age, partially because, you know, the boys had already been playing in their bedrooms for years and were much better than I was. And I was I was afraid to ask, you know, I was really afraid to go up and say, hey, can I play with you? Even though you're like, you know, and I'm like, ding, ding, dunk, dunk. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but why the bass? How did, how did a bass get in your hands? Oh, um, John Taylor from Duran Duran played bass. And I thought it would be a better uh, conversation starter than just, I think you're really hot. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Yeah, I, I had aspirations at, you know, 12 and 13 to, you know, be be a standout from the crowd in that way. You know, I was like, I gotta, I gotta do something more interesting than just be another fan of music. Um, And where did you grow up? I grew up in New York City in Manhattan in an apartment in Manhattan. And, you know, I often think to myself, you know, my true love is drums. I ended up becoming a drummer and playing drums for over 10 years in bands. Um, But, you know, that was never going to happen in a New York apartment. Uh, So, it's, I always think the bass was sort of my gateway drug, if you will. Absolutely. So you ended up then playing the bass and playing in bands and playing the drums and was college in the journey? It was. You were a college grad doing all sorts of interesting stuff. Yeah. I mean, college is where I really got, it's where I learned to, it's where I found out that I wanted to play the drums. It's where I got into my first band. I took my, my journey to to music was always very punk in that I took one drum lesson and I instantly was like, there's no chance I'm ever going to do this if I just have to sit in a room and play paradiddles. So the very next day I got into a band, I had, I had gained a lot of self-confidence, you know, in the last several years. Uh, and I just asked a whole bunch of boys that I went to college with if they would be in a band with me. And so the very next day after at one drum lesson, I was playing drums in a Pixies cover band which you can imagine how fantastic that was. 
(laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it was that era. Yeah. It was appropriate for the time. Right. I mean, I, you know, I couldn't hold a beat for more than 15 seconds or or whatever, but, you know, they were, I, I look back and I think, you know, those guys were the nicest guys. <laughs> I mean, they just completely put up with me. Um, but I, you know, I, re- I really fell in love with it. And so I just, I never stopped playing drums from that very first Pixies cover band. I, I ended up, you know, going into multiple bands. And then my college band, when we graduated, we moved to Minneapolis to make it in the big city because Minneapolis was, was one of the closest big cities to Grinnell, Iowa. So we went to Minneapolis and we got a practice space and we started playing gigs. And, you know, that was that was my perfect life. Right. I, I worked in a coffee shop and I lived in a house with eight other people and I played drums in the basement and I played out at night. And it was, you know, my ideal. Um, so that was fun. But then and- you ended up how did you end up then? So I've this is we're in May of 2020 and. I have hordes of undergraduate students coming to me now going, do I go on to grad school? And I keep going, no, go do music. Don't go on to grad school. But you went on and got your doctorate. Well, I did. But, you know, for me, I I just had this feeling I had to do something that my mother would be proud of. You know, I had this weird feeling that if I just because I, I moved back to New York. I was in Minneapolis for about 18 months after I graduated from college. And then I moved back to New York and I moved into my old childhood home on 51st Street between 9th and 10th um, and and got a job as a temp uh, because I discovered that my only marketable skills after four years of fabulous liberal arts education was my typing speed because my mother had sent me to the Betty Owen School of Typing when I was 12. So I, I had that as a marketable skill. Um, not that I don't, I didn't love my liberal arts education. I did. I mean, gosh, that was like the best. Those were some of the best years of my life. I, lo- I really loved it. Uh, but it was, I didn't find myself graduating with a lot of skills that people wanted to pay for. So I got a, a job at, um, a temp job at a, a, an investment banking firm uh, making presentations in PowerPoint. So that's what I did in the day. And I, you know, within literally two days of moving back to New York City, I had gotten into a band. I'd found a band looking for a drummer in the um, Village Voice, the old back pages of the Village Voice. This is before the internet, children. You don't even understand these words. <laughs> but <laughs> so, yeah, I answered an ad and I got into a an all-female band. It was my first all-female band. I had never been in an all-girl band before. I'd only been in mixed bands or bands where I was the only woman. Um and we played in New York for four years. We had a, a great time. But during that time, I also enrolled in grad school because I kind of got the impression from my mother that if I was just going to be a punk rock drummer and a, you know, a temp, that that was not really going to fly with her. And, you know, I had fallen in love with anthropology when I was at college. And I, someone had suggested that I look into the anthropology and education program that's housed at Teachers College at Columbia. And um, I loved it. You know, I I got in and I went and I loved it. I was 10 years younger than any of my classmates. I was completely full of myself. I screamed at someone on my very first day of grad school for using the word reify, um, which is hilarious now when I look back (laughs) because I felt he was being pretentious, which he was. It's grad school. It's it's grad school. It's grad school. (laughs) I know. It's multi-syllabic grad school. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, so that was my life for a really long time in the city. You know, I went to grad school. Uh, I went to my job making presentations and then I spent every night, you know, either practicing, playing out, going to see friends, bands, you know, up till four in the morning, five nights a week. You know, I just sort of lived that downtown rock and roll lifestyle. And I'm really glad I did because, it, you know, I, I feel like the rest of my career um, really has benefited from the fact that I lived that life. So I understand what artists are going through. And I, I agree with you, you know, I, I'm 100% on your side when you when you tell young people, just do it. Um, I find myself telling students, you know, every time I interact with students, I there's there's a lot of people who say like, well, I'll, you know, I'll form a band when I've done this or I'll, you know, when I've written the perfect song or, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll start playing out when I feel like, you know, my hair is the right length or something. I feel like people have a zillion billion excuses for why they don't just go out and do it. And I've always been a huge proponent of, no, you just have to go out and do it. Because the thing about playing music is it's not for everyone. You know, it's really fun. It is definitely fun. And you get an endorphin rush and, and all of the above, but, but it's a hard, it's a hard decision to make as a job. Um, and there's a lot of things about it that a lot of people don't like. You know, I remember the first time we went on tour and, you know, of course you lose money, you sleep on people's floors, you have, you play to six people in a club, you know, it's not glamorous right off the bat. Um, and you have to be prepared for that and you have to enjoy it. You know, I think, um, I think that's critical. So I did that. Uh, I played in bands for 10 years and I got my PhD and then when I left my band, my my final band, which had, is the one that had had a little bit of success, we had a song that got played on the radio and and got written up in Interview Magazine by Greil Marcus, and we you know uh, toured the country a couple times and made a couple records. You know, we sort of did the the indie band thing. Um, when I left that band, I wanted to take the knowledge that I had gotten and help other bands with it. So I in instantly started an artist management company called Shot Clock Management, and I started managing the band in the New York scene that I had been friends with that I thought had the most potential. Um, and, you know, they instantly broke up because so that's how you learn. <laughs> <laughs> that's another part of the business of music, right? It's like exactly. the, the chances that your band will last forever are nearly zero unless maybe you're the Rolling Stones. But it, that... You know, exactly. the, the end of it is part of to plan for. But let me back up half a step. So you came into this kind of as a, a triple threat, that you had seen the business side of the business in some major and boring ways. In uh, yes, PowerPoint did exist back then. And then you got a doctorate, but looking at kind of the human side of humanity, which actually I think is a great prep for music business, and had been an artist. So did you get to a point where you're thinking I should go teach or I should go be a business person in a bigger organization or this was just the obvious direction to go and have your own management company? Well, the management, you know, I I had sort of weirdly compartmentalized my life at that point and I had the music side and the academic side. So when I graduated, I actually got a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Washington. And, um, and so I, I started my management company and also started this postdoc at the same time because in my mind they were still kind of separate um and and then I had this experience that brought everything together 
which was I started to manage a band. I was managing a band. I had managed this band for a couple of years. And one of the things I had done in my younger days was live in England for a little bit. I went on my semester abroad to England and I had spent some time in England sort of on my own. Um, And I really thought that this band was exactly the kind of band that England would love. So I started taking this band that I was managing to England and they ended up going gold in England. They're a band called The Gossip. And, um, and, and so I was thrown into this crazy situation where I lived in Olympia, Washington. I had my day job in Seattle, Washington, which is like an hour and a half drive away. And then I had to fly to England like once a month um, to take care of this band and do stuff with this band. So my life became like a total melee uh, for about a year. And right about when everything was just crazy, my husband, who had started the indie label Kill Rockstars in 1991, just came to me one day and he said, hey, listen, you know, I think I'm sick of doing this. I don't want to run this label anymore. I want to explore different options in the music business. I'm going to apply for this job at a major label. Would you take over the label and shut it down? And 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 really, I mean, I think what he I think when he said shut it down, he meant like just sort of run it as a catalog label, like not really sign any new artists or do anything, you know, not really be active, but just sort of manage the label. And so that was the moment that I had the soul search and I had to say, what am I doing? You know, this, this, these two things, academia and music are not really melding for me. Um, I have to figure out what I want to do for real. And so I agreed. I quit my postdoc. I took over Kill Rock Stars. Um, I, you know, the band went gold. <laughs> we we went through that whole, you know, I signed them to a major label. I signed them to a major publishing deal. You know, everything sort of crazy started happening in uh, on the business end. And then, you know, so it just it just thrust me in to the business side really right away, you know, Um, and and that's when I started to discover how much I mean, I had always been interested in the business side. You know, there's always one person in a band who's kind of the business person who handles the business stuff. Yeah, hopefully. Exactly. If you're lucky. Um, And I was always that person for my bands. And and so, you know, to me, that was part of the interesting part of this was like, just how does this work? What are the processes? Like, what is publishing? Why, you know, why do we have to care about it? Um, And so, you know, that's when I really got, uh, you know, immersed in the whole business side of it. At the same time, one of the things, you know, a lot of things that happen in life is serendipity. Um, And, you know, I think students listening to this need to hear that and and take it on board because it's really true. It's like, you know, you can plan for anything you want, but life is still going to throw a lot of curves at you that you didn't see coming. Um, and, and so one of those things is that my husband had been one of the founding members of a trade association for the independent labels called A2IM. And uh, the year that they were starting that, and in fact, I went to the inaugural meeting, which was in a bar in, in Seattle, um, and so since he had left Kill Rockstars, I was I, I stepped into his shoes on the board of A2IM like the second year the organization was around. And I ended up being on that board for 12 years off and on. Um, you know, I would take because there's a mandatory year off. So you take a year off and then I get voted on the board again. And and honestly, I really feel like that experience is what teed me up a lot for my current music business job. Um, 
because I discovered how much I like trade associations. And I ended up being a member, uh, a board member of the RIAA for a couple of years um, for the Recording Academy, the Pacific Northwest chapter. I was the chair of the board uh, of Music Portland. We, you know, I, was, I helped start Music Portland in, in Portland, Oregon, and served as chair of that board for a few years um, until I moved away last fall. And I um, served as chair of the board of Rock and Roll Camp for Girls in Portland for about five years. Um, so I just really discovered that boards are fascinating to me and that they are a, a place where a lot of things can get done in the industry um, in a way that I hadn't hadn't been visible to me before. So I, I think that's one of I think that's probably one of the big reasons that I ended up getting this job. You know, it a lot to do with how the people that I knew from having been on all these boards and then just my interest in the kinds of, of change that boards can, that trade associations can, uh, can achieve. Excellent. So you have most people with their journey stories, they're like chunky iterations of single directions that shift gears. And you've been doing almost a simultaneous buffet all this time. And it sounds like that's one thing that brought you well into the same thing of a buffet of organizations together as trade associations. I mean, I tend to think of trade associations oftentimes, and I don't want to to malign anyone, as people with different interests attempting to be under the same roof and find common ground. Um, what has been, without naming names of anything negative, the differences in the way these organizations run specifically with the lens of we are now not in person, we are now attempting to represent our interests. What have you kind of seen in the way that that trade associations live and how they live and how that thrives or is challenged right now? Well, I think, you know, I'm sure you've heard this from a lot of people that you've spoken to, but certainly, you know, the biggest takeaway from this pandemic has been that, you know, people crave togetherness. They they really want community. You know, community community is not just a nice word that we say. It's like a real thing for people. Um, and you know, ha- with my anthropology training, I'm not surprised by that. But it's but it's really it's very true. Um, and so you know, I find that people have have been even more eager to get together and talk about issues than. Um, than they were beforehand. You know, it's easy to be so distracted in our everyday lives, running around, traveling, and taking this meeting and that meeting. Um, I think people are prioritizing pulling together right now. And I think trade associations are kind of a great place for that to happen because, you know, really the the bottom line is the welfare of, of the membership, right? Of everybody doing better than they are and so that's, I think, fostered a lot of great discussions in trade associations about, you know, how can we help each other? How can we help our members? How can we help our community? So I actually think it's it's been positive. What we've been seeing um, a lot of is new associations and new trade organizations when there were gaps. So whether it's the independent venues, whether it is in the UK, whole new light nightlife associations, it's almost like if there wasn't one, now is almost the ultimate need for one. 
Absolutely. I love it that Neva has sprung up here in the U.S. Um, you know, the venues have long been, for whatever reason, sort of non-joiners. And it's funny, you know, I remember because I was around at the beginning of, of A2IM, you know, I remember having these conversations with other independent labels. And it's like, you know, independent labels, if nothing else, are really, really independent. Right. And that's what people would say is they'd just be like, well, I'm just not a joiner. Like, I don't join things. I'm I'm an independent label. Like, I'm over here in, you know, some part of the country. I'm doing things my way. And that's and that's what I want to do. And I think, you know, I, I think it's been fascinating and really cool to watch the growth of A2IM. You know, now they have over, like, 400 label members, and it's every label that you have ever heard of, you know, is now, you know, every indie label is, is now really a member. They're... V- very few. I mean, I can't even really think of of any um, big, in, you know, big well known indies or even small niche cool indies that aren't part of A two M. And it's because everybody started to see the value of working together, and that you know you can do more together than you can alone. You know, you may be a lone voice and you may be an iconoclast and someone who stands on their own two feet or whatever. But the the bottom line is you have more bargaining power when you're together. You have more clout, at, you know, with the rest of the industry when you're part of a group. And so I'm thrilled to see Neva spring up. Um, and I think, you know, venues have traditionally sort of had that like outsider mentality, individual mentality. And I think that's now is a perfect time. That shows, you know, not only how how venues need each other and venues need to be part of the conversation that we're having in the industry, but also how we need venues. You know, I mean, look at everybody in the music industry. All of our artists are grounded, right? Nobody can play out. So this is, this is a, this really points up how we are a a community altogether. And it's not just, you know, I I think I've said in many interviews and, and on my podcast multiple times that in the last two months that, you know, if this pandemic had happened 20 years ago, we never would have seen the kind of togetherness and outpouring of support that we have in the industry right now, because people were really segmented, you know, 20 years ago. They were, I have my little piece of pie and I'm over here in the corner and I'm not sharing. You know, it was it was very, I think it was extremely different. Um, and I think we've seen so much work to, you know, come together. And I think it largely has to do with the digital revolution and the fact that, you know, the entire industry tanked and, you know, our main form of revenue, which was physical sales, tanked. Um, And then we all had to learn how to get with the new program. And, you know, um, the work that folks have done at trade associations like, you know, Mitch Glazier at uh, RIAA and David Israelite to pull together the MMA, Bart Herbison, you know, these people who have done incredible work uh, on behalf of everybody, you know, to to set things up with the MMA it, for, for something that's going to help everybody in the industry grow. So I do believe that that sort of set the tone. And yet now we're living, you know, the last two years we've been living in this lucky situation where people get it, that they need to work together and that we're stronger together. 
at the same time, you also have had similar growth of organizations locally. You'd mentioned Music Portland, and they were able to, because of their existence, be able to be surveying Portland venues within a week of everything starting to come together. So there, you've also had other groups that who come up locally that have been able to build parts and pieces to also support local economies. Yeah. Absolutely. Which is, you know, I, I want to see more of that. And I kind of have a vision for Music Biz, you know, as a tr- as this trade association, I'd like to be the local trade association's trade association. You know, I'd like us to be the sort of parent organization for all these small local trade associations. I think we can really work together. And But, you know, it means we need to find ways to support the creation of trade associations in cities that don't have them, but they do have music business. And it's funny because you know, people talk about, you know, oh, there's no industry in that city. And and when people say there's no music industry in a city, they, they tend to mean there's no major label presence. But the but that means that there's only, um, you know, industry in a few cities in America, which is crazy because we know that there's music business happening all over the place and there's great companies all over the place. And so, you know, I feel like we need to encourage the creation of these local trade organizations to to centralize, you know, I mean, music music Portland is an amazing example of of how if you build it, then it exists and then people utilize it. You know, it I mean, which is like duh, but it it's really true in practice. You know, we had a situation at Music Portland where, you know, after the organization was created and after we'd been around for like a year and you know put out lots of information so that people knew we existed. We got approached by a developer who was talking about creating a centralized music hub for all sorts of, um, you know, stuff to happen. And I'm like, you know, that person, if we didn't exist, that person wouldn't have had anyone to call. You know what I mean? And that was and they had like millions of dollars. Like they were like, hey, we've got this project and we need, you know, we need your help with it. And and I was like, wow, like they would have just had that millions of dollars would have just gone begging because there would have been nobody to call. Yeah. And so many of those organizations have pulled together into things like REVS, the Reopen Every Venue Safely group between about, I think it's like nine different cities, and then all of the work that nightlife.org is doing. So it's it's interesting that there's so much now sort of building groups of groups, which I think that's a, a great combined mission with Music Business Association. Absolutely. Um, I mean, sort of hit two more beats here on this. One is the, um, it's been fascinating uh, for those of people who follow the podcast, that there are a group of us who did an Amplify Music virtual conference back in April with about 30 organizations and coming up fairly quickly to put something out there for people to talk. And I could probably be at five conferences a day right now, as so many organizations who did major live events have had to regroup to think about how do we convene in a distributed sense. And... Um, Music Biz is a longtime strong event that used to be in Los Angeles. They moved to Nashville, lovely kind of tentpole of major events in May usually. And you guys have had to rethink, well, what the hell, what the heck is our gathering now? What have been the processes of thinking through for this community in this time, how to restructure the gathering of Music Biz? Needed to pivot, to move uh, what's been a robust live convening every year is the core and the heartbeat of the organization online. So Music Biz has been doing that. What was the thought process in 
how you would pivot and then what the community needs in this somewhat actually getting busier digital convening space online. Totally. Well, the first thing we wanted to do was bring resources, you know, information about resources to everybody. So our first Music Biz Live six weeks ago was with Facebook and Instagram to talk about the things that they did, they were doing for the community and the tools that they had available and, and you know, ways that people could connect uh, using those platforms. And um, and and they uh, the thing that was sort of shocking us is we started out doing two a week and to, to see the number of people who were engaged and who would come to these Music Biz Lives, it really made us... Uh, astonished because, you know, it, it just proved that people are really seeking, they're seeking information and they're seeking connection at this time. Like the, it was actually really way beyond our our expectations in terms of the numbers of people who were turning out and the engagement. You know, people were using the chat function in Zoom to network and to connect and to, you know, talk to each other and ask questions and, you know, just be active. And it was, it was really heartwarming, you know, to see how, how um, heartwarming and sad, right? Because, you know, we can't be together. So this is how we have to interact. But at the same time, there was so much engagement. And, you know, we ended up after six weeks and 14 Music Biz Lives with like 4,700 people from 47 countries uh, coming to these events. And so we ended up realizing that this is, you know, at this time, this is a service that we really can provide to our membership and to the industry writ large, you know, because people need the connection. They need the place to gather and and they need the to feel like this is normal. You know, we need to talk about the stuff that's going on in our industry and in our world together. We can't just be stranded and separated from each other forever. So I actually feel like it's it's been shockingly um, positive. So Music Biz has been doing webinars and other things for a while. Is this maybe a opportunity to, I, mean, I tend to think of large conferences that we have phenomenal connection once a year and then little pieces of things in the other 364 days. Is this potentially a robust avenue for Music Biz and other conferences to build all that interstitial space in between out to be community builders or you know, it, there's a need, what is then the real opportunity to kind of build something longer term? Well, I think we're, you know, we will see. We have a big plan. I mean, we have about 20 weeks of programming right now slated for the rest of this year. Um, and and we're going to do a bunch of things. We're going to pilot a bunch of programs next. You know, we're, we're going to do, um, I almost said next week, but that is not... <laughs> <laughs> that's not that's not very evergreen. Uh, you know, we have a ton of programming coming up for this year, and we're piloting a whole bunch of technologies to see, you know, what we can offer to people. Because, you know, long term, I mean, first of all, I think this crisis is going to last a little bit longer than we all wish it would. So we're probably going to have to do this for longer than we think we will. But then also, you know, it is a it is an option, an opportunity to, you know, to build some some practices and some some you know events that 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 people enjoy and that are useful to people that we could take into the future even when we can get back together you know um, I I heard someone say not that long ago that oh I think it was when we were talking to the people in in Europe the global trade association folks in Europe um, 
that probably what's going to happen for the next couple of years is we're going to have to be open and shut and open and shut and open and shut um, as we get this virus under control. And and that means that all of these tools we're building now are actually really going to be useful in the long run because, you know, it's like, let's say we can get together and have a conference and we do that, but then we all have to shut down again. Well, we've got these, you know, these tools already built and people have already, you know, tested them out and, and enjoyed them and found them useful. So, uh, you know, it, it's nothing but positive in that way. Well, also you mentioned, I think, 47 countries coming together, which hasn't necessarily been the robustness for music biz in the past. So it, it becomes a what time zone are we in question more than a, right. uh, you know, where do we show up and when it, when do we come to Nashville to convene? So uh, exactly. there's a lot of really interesting new threads connecting that, that weren't robustly there before. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, 4,700 unique viewers, you know, we're not going to get that many people in any meeting room at the JW Marriott, you know, in Nashville. So it, it is it's it is a weird opportunity in that way. And as well, there'll be continuing needs for change and challenge uh, for for the various members and potential members who now can be part of that. Uh, how do we live through this on a robust and growing basis? Basis. I want to twist backwards to one other thing, which is that you've had this fabulous future of what podcast now for quite a few years. How did that prep you for the current challenges, and what are you seeing as um, as its opportunities going forward? And how does that sort of intertwine with all the different things you're doing? Well, I think nothing can prepare you for living your life on Zoom. So I feel like that's a very different experience from, you know, I <laughs> when I went into the Music Biz Live series, I was like, oh, great interviews. I've been doing those for six years. You know, this is totally my wheelhouse. And then as soon as the camera came on, I was like, Ugh. <laughs> it's like being face to face five inches away from somebody's eyeballs the whole time. I, was I like, know. Oh it's, gosh. Oh, and I'm being looked at every moment. And yeah. yeah. Oh. It's kind of awful. So the Zoom portion, I've I've been a little unhappy with, but um, you know, I keep trying to say to myself, it's you know, it's still the same quality of interview. Like, still, you know, still give them the same quality of interview with, even though I'm thinking in my head, oh my god, everybody's looking at like my nose is uneven, or something. <laughs> I've noticed a gap in my tooth that I really yeah. didn't see before. It's like, exactly. oh crap! <laughs> I will see the yeah. dentist when we can go back. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that that was that didn't really prepare me for a lot, but you know, I think the the podcast has been great. Um, we've been doing it since 2014. Um, in that, it's it's just such a great way to get people talking about issues, you know, and and really to you know that that's another thing I really love about the music industry is that you know when you counsel your students to go talk to people or network or like meet people. Um, I think people are really intimidated by that a lot of the time. You know, they, they think, oh, I can't talk to this person who's the CEO of this company or the executive vice president or something. But the truth is the music industry is is really friendly. You know, people care about their jobs. They care about what we do. They care about helping artists and and, you know, helping people's careers. And so for the most part, almost everybody is really willing to um, to talk about what they do and their job and why they love their job. And, and that part, I think, is is why I've, you know, 
it's what helped me fall in love with the music industry, the music business as a as an ecosystem, you know, because everybody is really everybody really loves what they do. And I feel like you don't necessarily get that in every industry. You know, I think there's a lot of people who go to a job just because it's a job, not because, you know, this makes them filled with joy. And so many people in the music industry really love what they do. Um, that it and and I also always really wanted to highlight the fact that there are so many people behind the scenes working on the business end. It's not, you know, seeing an artist on tour is kind of like the finished product, you know, or listening to an album. Uh, but it's not, but there's so much that goes into that, uh, that I wanted to sort of help to highlight that with the podcast. And I still think it's true. You know, I think, I think it's fascinating. You know, I do think we have a little bit of a problem with the general public in that I, I'm not, I think we're kind of like the movie industry or the TV industry in that I don't know that people really want to see how the sausage is made. You know, I think I, they don't necessarily want to know what goes on behind the scenes, but every now and then, you know, and I'm sure you find this all the time, you know, when you have kids who are actually interested in the business aspect, they're fascinated, you know, and they really want to find out well, who, you know, who did this and who's the, you know, how did publicists work and, you know, what does it mean to, to create a marketing campaign for a new album and, you know, stuff like that. So there's a lot to it. It's hard to see beyond the bright shiny at times or to realize that the bright shiny is only a few people as well. And so that there's a sort of the idealized business, but there's all the other people, which has been one of my joys in going to music biz is seeing so many different people from different dimensions. Well, we're nearly at the end already. This has been a great conversation. Uh, let me ask my final question of not having a crystal ball, but what do you look forward to as to what we all could possibly do in the next six months? Are there things that you see afoot that are going to be interesting new opportunities, new organizations? We talked about Neva, um, where people may want to get involved. Yeah, you know, I feel like there, I, I made a list of silver linings at one point. Because every time I would have a conversation with somebody, it would reveal a new silver lining to this ridiculous and horrible situation that we're all currently in. Um, and and there's just so many things that might come out of this. You know the the com, you know the strengthening of community is a big one, right? If we you know if the if the venues get involved um, and and come into the fold and you know sort of in, play play with everybody else in the same pool that that would be a huge gain for everybody um if you know I, you know i feel like this there's opportunities to discuss things that topics that have you know previously been taboo or previously been things that people just are too busy to talk about um that could help the industry there are changes to government regulations, there are changes to taxes, tax laws that might have long-term impacts on artists and people in the music community. You know, um, when I was talking to those folks in Europe, they were talking about tax cuts, like certain types of tax cuts, and you know, the 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 fact that the music industry in the U.S. made a huge push to Congress to think about how artists get their income. So they're not W-2 workers and they're not always just 1099 workers. You know, they're, they're sometimes a combination. They're sometimes a totally different, you know, 
their taxes are, are more complicated. So it's not easy to give them a loan by just saying, you know, submit your W-2s and then you can apply for a loan. Um, you know, any kind of changes that we might end up making to the laws and regulations that that will have long-term effects that could benefit people in the industry would be amazing. So, you know, I just feel like there's a lot of, of opportunity right now. And, and for us to come together, and you, and, you know, that's the great part, right, is that we don't really have anything else to do except come together right now. Um, so it's just, you know, it's it's rife with possibility and opportunity. And, and I'm hoping that we, we come out of this stronger and better and more committed to, um, you know, the strength of our industry as a whole rather than, you know, I always say, like, let's grow the pie so we can all benefit as opposed to, you know, I'm going to take my piece of the pie and run away and hide. And now we can see the pie a little better at times, which is good, too. Absolutely. So we're at the end of our adventure here. Anything you'd like to mention we didn't talk about? I don't think so. And if people would like to reach out to you, what's the best way of getting a hold of you? Portia at musicbiz.org. And what would you like people to reach out about? Um, you know, I, I love to connect with people. I'm always interested in, um, in hearing who's out there and, and, you know, what they're interested in, you know, certainly I'm, I'm happy to talk to students who want to talk about, you know, options and opportunities, um, you know, new businesses, new tech startups, you know, we have a lot of tech startups as members at music biz. And I think that's been a great pivot for us, um, because there, there are so many people who are coming into the music space who are doing great things and solving real problems that we have in the industry uh, way better than it used to be. You know, I feel like some years ago, the tech, the tech people who came into the music space were not actually interested in music business problems. They were interested in finding a new market for their tech. Um, and I love it that there's so many people who are actually solving real problems, finding new ways to monetize music for artists. You know, um, f I, I always talk about a company called Tracklib that is, you know, letting people sample um, in a in a way that clears, you know, the licenses are, are cleared easily. And, um, and as a result, you know, older artists that perhaps people have forgotten about are having new life because they're being sampled by young artists and their music is being brought back into the public eye. So, you know, just so many ways that tech has been beneficial to the music industry. And I love it that we're I love it that we're all playing nice now, music and tech. Yeah. Or at least understanding each other's languages, which is yeah. always good as well. Right. And helping bring it all together right now. So a lot of things happening. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. You have found one of our adventures now in the Marimel Podcast Network. You can find our shows everywhere that you listen to podcasts. We've got Amplify Music Conversations from the Amplify Music Conferences during the pandemic, Creative Innovators, and now Innovating Music. If you're interested in following up with us in any of these shows, please reach out on our websites, and you can find those in the show notes.